Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This week we pick up again our study of 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 5. By the way, did we mention that there's an ordination service? Was that mentioned? Okay. All right. So we go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 5 for the second week. And uh, again, I want to go back uh, not just to 14, but also to the book of 1 Corinthians for those who are visiting today so that you understand that we've been going through this book for quite a while now. This is our 74th sermon on 1 Corinthians. Um, And we have... We have miles to go before we sleep, and miles to go before we sleep. That was for you, Brandon. (laughs) So in this church, as in every church, there have been a lot of irregularities and disorders and a lot of pride, proud displays of preeminence that have corrupted the worship of the church in Corinth. And this letter is written to build up the church, and the way the Apostle Paul is building up the church is by disciplining it, admonishing it, and correcting it. So don't ever be apologetic for building up your children. And the way you do that is you admonish and correct them. And that's a privilege. You never have to worry about whether you're doing what's right and helpful when you admonish and correct your children. It's the only work you'll do in your life that you can be absolutely certain is divine. The children won't receive it that way. So the Apostle Paul's writing to the people in the church of Corinth, and he's admonishing them, and the admonishments go on and on and on. And there's a certain order and logic to the order of the admonishments, and I want us to enter into that. He's correcting the divisions by teaching the Corinthians here in this part of the book four things. First, that there are a variety of spiritual gifts. Now, you know the term charismatic or charismatic churches. You may not know the term uh, charisma or charis, but think of charis as being uh, a gift or a grace. So that woman has lots of grace, might mean that she has good comportment, but she has many graces means that she has a lot of special gifts that God has given her. She may be both beautiful and sing prettily. That's very unusual. Usually those things... (laughs) She might be beautiful, sing prettily, and she might have ten children. So these are gifts that God has given that woman. In the church, every single one of us has been given gifts. And there are a variety of gifts... And all of them first come from and are given by the same Holy Spirit. So in the church, our gifts come from God. Okay? Second, every single member of the church of Corinth and here has a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit. It's not just some people are gifted and other people aren't. All right? We all have a gift. The gifts come from God. We all have a gift. Third, Each of the gifts is given not for you and not for me. It's given for the common good. 
You don't own it. God uses you to build up the church. So the gifts are given for the common good, not for us as individuals. We're not to be selfish with them. And fourth, all the gifts are given by the Holy Spirit as he wishes. They're not given the way we wish. You know, all of us wish that we had the gift of our older brother or younger brother, and all of us who are younger and older brothers wish that we had the gift of the middle child. And you might say, not in our family, but I say, yeah, actually, we all are uh, possessed by uh, the grass being greener on the other side. And so the Apostle Paul has gone through these four truths about the gifts. Number one, they all come from God. Number two, every member of the church has a gift that comes from God. Number three, each of the gifts that is given is not for you, but for the common good. And number four, the gifts are given as God chooses to give them, not as we do. Now, the Apostle Paul has gone through these gifts, and then he stops to illustrate the unity and diversity of the body of Christ, the body of Christ, by illustrating it through the body of a man or a woman. We have bodies, we have members, uh, hand, arm, head, nose, and he shows how similar the body of Christ and its gifts are to the body and its gifts. Now, when he gets done that illustration, he returns to spiritual gifts. Remember, they're dividing over spiritual gifts. Remember that they're getting a leg up on each other through their spiritual gifts. They're using the gifts that come from God for the common good to build each individual up and make them feel special. All right? And he's, he, so the way he, he brings unity is he, comes, he goes through the body and shows how the body can't have the hand slapping the eye or the eye saying that it doesn't care about the toe. Then he comes back to the body of Christ and he says, now listen. He says, uh, there is an order to these gifts. And the way unity comes is when you observe the order that God ordains in these gifts. And this is what we dealt with last week. It is perfectly scandalous to us that God is himself and that he constantly creates in all his creation a hierarchy. We hate hierarchy. We just utter the word hierarchy and we think that we've won the argument. Well, you're hierarchical. Well, God is hierarchical. There's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a hierarchy. All right? And so the Apostle Paul comes back to the gifts. You know, they come from God. They're for the glory of God. They come as God chooses. They're to build up the church. Everybody has a gift. And then he says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then boop, 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 boop. And that's a hierarchy. And God doesn't say, I'm sorry to say this to you. And God doesn't say, I know this is going to hurt some of your feelings. Okay? And I am not being a bully when I say to you, feelings don't count. They don't matter. Your feelings, contrary to what you've been told your whole life, your feelings don't matter. When God does something... Your feelings are supposed to be brought into conformity to what God's done. You're not supposed to whine to God about what he's done. And if you live a life of bitterness, it's because you're whining to God. It has nothing to do with your mama and your papa. 
Honestly, that has nothing to do with whatever church you attended. If you're a bitter person, it's because God has disappointed you. It's not because the church has. I'm not saying people haven't hurt you. But God is the one whose presence we live in. So he goes through the hierarchy. And as he's going through this hierarchy, all of a sudden he stops, you know. And the Apostle Paul has all these parenthetical statements that go on for an hour. And, you know, you can see where the train's headed, and you can watch him making progress. And then all of a sudden he's saying, but wait, 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 wait. I have a more excellent thing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm nothing. You know, and so he's like, oh, what's wrong is they don't love each other. And this typical of us as moms and dads. You know, we're going on instructing, and then it's, it's like, do you love each other? You know? Um, a few years ago, there was a man in our church who has a beautiful voice, and this man was really irritated by the music that was being played in our worship service. And this man will remain nameless, but he's very tall. <laughs> and so I was talking to Curtis. <laughs> and it was difficult for Curtis because Curtis had been raised in, I think, a Southern Baptist context, right? And so Curtis had grown up with the, the, the liturgy of the Southern Baptist Church, which really is based in the historic hymns. Now, outside of church, he was a head-banging rocker. Prog rocker, but rocker, you know, yes, stuff like that. All classic. But, so outside of church, he loved amplified music. But inside church, guess what? The voice likes voices. Are you with me? And I understand, because I was raised in traditional hymns, so I was talking to Curtis one day, and I said, Curtis, listen, Jody is humbling himself by playing amplified music. Jody has given up early music, which is about as priggish as any music can be. All right? He's given up the violin. All right? And now he's playing this headbanging rock and roll in church. Now, it's not headbanging here, right? And I said, what we need to do is love it. And here's what Curtis said. Curtis said, look, I'm not complaining. And what did I say? That's not good enough. What you need to do is love the musicians and love the music. Do you see... We have so many reasons to be offended and to know that our judgments are superior. And honestly, our judgments are often superior. It is often true that if our judgments ruled in a church, it would be better than the elders. Do you understand what I'm saying? You think in marriage how often your wife's judgment is better than you. But you know something? Unity and love is best of all. And if the elders have made a decision, we're going to have amplified music, everybody is supposed to love it. Unless, of course, there's actually something fundamental to the amplification of an organ that makes it wicked. And I snookered you because I said organ, and nobody's going to argue against an organ being used in a church, right? So listen, we all get off our high horse. You know what a high horse is. You know, we all get... 
and we're done with all our, you know, superiority complexes that our taste is. And man, when you talk taste in a church, music is, I mean, every one of us is absolutely certain that our taste in music is a theological expression, (laughs) you know. None of us think it's a preference. We all think it's a principle. And so the only thing that is going to allow Curtis to survive in this church long term as, as a highbrow Christian, okay, is for him to love our musicians and to love the decisions of the elders and, and to give himself to it. And you know you're, yourself very well. The minute you start, stop loving your wife, you can't stand every single one of her habits. Am I right? Or you're not going to cop to it because she's sitting next to you right now. But I mean, how long could you go in your house with your wife or your husband if you didn't love them? (laughs) Come on. Or your children. That's why every mother loves children, because children aren't the most uh, scintillating creatures when they come out of the womb. You know? uh, All right, the mothers are getting mad. I'll come back to the text. So the Apostle Paul stops and he says, look, the problem is you don't love each other. That's why you're fighting over the gifts. If you speak with the tongues of men and then angels and don't have love, you're nothing. Now, love is this, love is this. Love's going love's to be there when everything else is gone, okay? It's a long aside. It's called the love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Now he comes back, and what does he do? Well, he's trying to establish order and peace in the church. And so the way he establishes order and peace is he returns to the theme of hierarchy, He returns to tongues and he returns to prophecy. Those are the two gifts he singles out. And he says, prophecy is greater than tongues. So here is the word of God as it is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And it is eternally true. Pursue love, he says. So he's just been dealing with love. So he says, pursue love. Yet... Desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. This is the word of the Lord. Do you see the hierarchy? The hierarchy is very clear. It was clear before, it's clear here. He is bringing peace by establishing the proper order. If you think that order comes out of confusion, you're wrong. And so he returns to the theme of hierarchy. And he says, if tongues are to be desired along with other spiritual gifts, he wishes all Corinthians spoke in tongues, and yet prophecy is greater. Now, in order for us to understand the way the argument develops, we have to answer the question, what are tongues? What is the gift of tongues? All right, and this is the source of a huge argument in uh, the church today. 
It's a battlefield. There are many who say that the Holy Spirit no longer gives the gift of tongues. Many, many people say today that the Holy Spirit no longer gives the gifts of tongues. And that like healing and prophecy, and like the office of apostle, tongues was an extraordinary gift given for the church's infancy. The extraordinary and the miraculous were bestowed upon the church at the beginning to show God's power and that he approved of those who worshipped the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, these people aren't lunatics, and so let me make the case for them for a little bit. God showed his approval of his son by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was a radical and supernatural sign to all men that God's only begotten son, Jesus, was and is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead was poured out on the apostles also so that as they went out preaching the resurrection of Jesus, the people who were called to repentance and faith in Jesus' name would not be reliant solely upon the Christian's testimony to Jesus' resurrection, but would also be able to see, be able to observe in other miraculous actions the confirmation of Jesus' resurrection and God's approval of the supplanting of the Old Testament temple and sacrifices that was limited to Jews with God's own Lamb, Jesus Christ, who now welcomed all men. So, okay, here's the deal. The changes are mind-boggling. Yes, they're fulfillment of the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament has a riot of blood and a temple to point to the Lamb of God whose blood is shed. But the Old Testament, it's the Israelites that are the people of God. Now it's the church. And now Gentiles and Jews are together in the church. And so think of all the heavy lifting that has to be done. You have to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and this itself is a hurdle, right? You'd never heard of it before. Somebody came to you and said, this man Jesus, who was crucified, executed by the Romans, now was raised from the dead, and 500 of us at one time saw it. Well, you're not just going to say, well, that's nice. You know, you're going to go, what? Who saw it? When? How often? For how many days? You know, you're a skeptic, right? You're going to ask them to prove it to you, right? And so what God does is God says, look, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on them. So instead of them just having the message of the resurrection, they're also going to have visible manifestations of my power that continue. All right? And so... You go to the book of Acts, and Acts is, uh, you can call it the Acts of the Apostles, or you can call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but it's a record of how God worked in the early church right at the beginning. And if you go to the first chapter, here's what you hear. Acts chapter 1, Theophilus is written to by the physician Luke, Dr. Luke. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and that was what account? What do we call it? the Gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Convincing proofs. 
This is what the supernatural sign gifts were, convincing proofs. Over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, so he's still speaking of Jesus, gathering the apostles together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, and then he starts quoting Jesus. And he says, which, he said, Jesus, you heard from me, for John, this is Jesus speaking to the apostles, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, now we're back to Luke speaking, when they had come together, the apostles, who were, they were asking him, Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, the apostles, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then listen to this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is what Jesus had prophesied would happen. They were to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came on them in power, and then they'd go out as witnesses. So then we read in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, power, power, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Who? Who was it? Who was it? Jews. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, the disciples, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And so here we see the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the apostles, the disciples, were commanded to wait for in Jerusalem. You will receive power, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and it was the gift of tongues. Okay? Does it make sense? The Holy Spirit showed God's approval of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Jesus' death and resurrection, by making the Christians all speak in foreign languages that they had never studied and that they didn't know. And so each man heard the gospel in his own language, even though all those speaking were Galileans. But it wasn't only tongues that the Holy Spirit worked among the believers. When they believed that day, 3,000 of them were added to their number of the church. And we read in Acts 2 a little bit later 
Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Awe and power go together. All right? And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So all kinds of miracles were going on, not just the speaking in tongues. And then it goes on and, and, it, and it describes one miracle, or a couple of them. What was it? Okay? Many miracles and signs were going on. Are you listening, American? Are you listening? Here's one of the miracles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Wouldn't it be great if the Pentecostal church condemned the Reformed church for not selling their property? Now that would be on the money. So many wonders and signs held all things in common, sold their property and possessions, sharing with anyone who had need. This was extraordinary. And the word extraordinary means what? Out of the ordinary. Extraordinary means not ordinary. It was miraculous. It was contrary to the laws of nature. What is more contrary to the laws of nature than people acting in a way that is against their principle of greed and selfishness? (laughs) You know, we don't think of this. We just feel guilty. But stop and think. I mean, now that's a real supernatural gift. The miracles continued as the gospel was preached, confirming that the gospel was true. We read in the next chapter, which is Acts 3, the classic miracle story of the book of Acts, right? Every kid knows it. They went walking and leaping and praising God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, which is money, kids. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention. You know, alms, 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 look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And what? They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John... That's a sweet picture. He wasn't clinging to them because he couldn't walk. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Imagine if Bob all of a sudden is walking and leaping and praising God. 
We'd all come. We'd be amazed, wonder. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people. So they're all coming. There's the man walking and leaping and hugging. And Peter saw this, and he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Now, who is he speaking to? Come on. Jews. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at this, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? So again, the issue is, it's not the power of man, it's not my gift, it is the power of God who is confirming that Jesus Christ is his son, that he was raised from the dead, that he was sent as a sin offering. All of this is a way of bringing God's loud voice and supernatural actions to cause people to believe in Jesus Christ. And the apostles know that they aren't the muckety-mucks and the grand poobahs. That's something that in, in the church today, nobody knows it anymore. Everybody thinks it's all about the preacher. The apostles always discipline the people's tendency to look to them instead of to God. And Peter says, hey, don't think we did it by our power. Uh-uh-uh-uh. It's Jesus. It's God. Okay. And he goes on and preaches the gospel. And at the end of his sermon, he says, Therefore, give me money and buy my books. Uh, Therefore, I will be in Chicago next week at McCormick's place. Now, he says, therefore, what? He says, therefore, repent and believe. Repent is the word that's never heard in the church today. No matter what gift is exercised, the point of it is never today repentance. It's never. Right? You, you all realize this, right? Right? And I always blame the preachers, but you know who's to blame? You are. Not you, you, but you. Because the Bible tells us that people will choose the teachers and the preachers that their itching ears want. So if we really want to blame the church today for not having repentance preached, it's because the church has no tolerance for repentance being preached. You have the preachers you deserve, and then you eat from their hands, and you become what you eat. And all of you talk about that all the time on Facebook. You never stop talking about you are what you eat. And you're all meticulous when it comes to what goes in your stomach, and you lack any discrimination whatsoever about what goes in your brain and in your heart and in your soul, you know? Because you don't have any patience for the hard work that allows you to discriminate between good and evil. Remember? Remember what Jody just read to you at the end of that chapter of Hebrews? Patient work, hard work, learn to discriminate. And the one thing the church today doesn't want is to know how to discriminate because with discrimination comes responsibility, you know? And the one thing the church says, all right, I'm coming back. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Oh, man. This was the point of his sermon. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be forgiven. Any of you have any sins you want to be forgiven? Ah, now we can go home. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's just so sweet. 
How could you not follow an elder like David Canfield? Honestly. When was David most an elder to us, before or after his confession of sin? (laughs) Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. (laughs) Oh, that's the Christian life. Repent and return so that times of refreshing may come. Not a lemonade stand, but repent and return. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So all through the book of Acts, you're going to find similar signs and miracles that confirm the power of God at work through Jesus Christ, powerfully assisting the apostles in proclaiming his name and calling men to repent and to believe. And the miracles and signs are not just for blessing in life, are they? Do you know that there's a miracle in the book of Acts, and it's very similar to another time when there's a revival in the church? You know what that other time when there's a revival in the church is? It's when a couple of dudes didn't follow the command of God and they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and it almost fell, and one of them reached out to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant, and God God killed him. And so now you have another revival. It's unbelievable revival. And Ananias and Sapphira, they violate the holiness of God. God does this. God shows his people that he means business. And so another miracle is a miracle of death, which is Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead. It's a miracle. And we read that right after they're struck dead, this is right afterwards, we read this in Acts 5, beginning with verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. Uh, You with them? Okay. Among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So apparently at this time, there was no disunity. One accord. But none of the rest, so we're talking about non-believers, Jews, but non-believers, none of the rest dared to associate with them, however. The people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Do you see, this is the result... This is the result of the work of God in Ananias and Sapphira. Do you see this? Many more added to their number. Everybody fears them. And there are no hypocrites. (laughs) You see? Why would you bother being a hypocrite in a church where if you lied in worship, they would strike you dead? And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to the number to such an extent that they even carried, now watch this, we go from Ananias and Sapphira to, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. It doesn't go on and say it, but his shadow healed them. Remember Jesus just touched his garment? Jesus says, you know, I felt the power go out from me. 
Peter's shadow was healing them. And then we read also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all, all of them being healed, all of them. And so we can see how these signs and wonders built the church. They were powerful testimonies wrought by God to confirm his gospel ambassadors, the apostles, in their preaching of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ and their calling of men and women to repent and to believe. Tongues was merely one of these gifts. But it seemed to have a particular purpose of not just being a sign and wonder to unbelievers, but also confirming the coming of the Holy Spirit upon individual persons, confirming their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, when the Apostle Peter was directed by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, okay, We read in Acts 10, while Peter was still speaking, he's preaching to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. So in other words, the Jews were amazed. The Holy Spirit came on them. The Jews were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, to have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have something different here, right? They all were listening to the preaching of the gospel. They all understood it, right? Then the Holy Spirit came on, uncircumcised Gentiles. And when the Holy Spirit came on them, the way the Holy Spirit signaled the Jews who thought it's just us, the way they signaled them was to have tongues come on them. This is very different from the day of Pentecost. We have another different thing in Ephesus, when the Apostle Paul is preaching to the Ephesians, where we read in Acts 19, 5 and 6, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, this is interesting. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. All right? Tongues, prophecy. Acts chapter 14, verse 5, our text this morning, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets. So the charism, the grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit of prophecy is greater than the charism or grace or gift of tongues. Why? Because prophecy builds up, edifies, is helpful to the church, whereas tongues only builds up and edifies the individual speaking tongues. This is what he says in the first five verses of chapter 14. Unless the tongues are interpreted. And so what are tongues? What is the gift of tongues? Well, the answer is it's not at all clear, is it? It depends on the circumstance. It depends on the timing. The gift itself is a mystery, and many arguments are made and exchanged that take this or that position. Some say tongues is always and only speaking in a foreign language that one has not learned. 
The obvious example of this is what the disciples did in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Despite all of them being Galileans, we read that all the nationalities, all Jews, all the nationalities of Jews from the dispersion, all of them said this. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we're born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So, They're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Everybody understands because of the tongues, all right? The other places the gifts of tongues are mentioned, though, there's no indication that they were given for the purpose of outsiders hearing in their own language. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, making the parenthetical statement, unless he interprets indicates that there was a practice of tongues among the assembled church of Corinth that was impossible for the body of believers to understand because it wasn't interpreted. Otherwise, how do you make sense of verse 5? Greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. You see, prophecy edifies and tongues don't. Because prophecy is in the known language and tongues isn't. Unless the tongue is interpreted, and then everyone does understand and is edified. So it's apparent that some practice of tongues was understood through interpretation, and some, likely most of the practice of tongues, was not interpreted. Now why do I say most? Because the word unless indicates it's out of the ordinary. At least in Corinth. Therefore, the common, the usual, the normal practice of tongues in Corinth that was dividing the church was the use of the gift of tongues without interpretation. They couldn't understand it. Therefore, it should not be done in public. Because it doesn't edify the church. Note that the Apostle Paul does not say the Holy Spirit would not give the gift of tongues without interpretation. Now, that's an important point. He doesn't go on and say this is an illegitimate gift because it's not being interpreted. He only says that the gift of prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues because prophecy edifies, builds up, helpful to the church and her believers, whereas tongue only edifies the individual himself who is speaking in tongues. Verses 2 through 4, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries, but one who prophesies, prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Do you see this? So now let's summarize, and then we'll be done. First, the division within the Corinthian church over the use of the spiritual charisms, the spiritual graces, the spiritual gifts, is principally over the use of the gift of tongues. It is tongues and prophecy that the Apostle Paul singles out with, for comparison and for contrast, for contrasting. Okay? Okay? Second, the Apostle Paul 
seeks to heal that division by establishing the proper hierarchy of these two gifts, with tongues being lower and prophecy being higher. It's more value because it's edifying and building up to the whole church. Third, the gift of tongues was given by the Holy Spirit to show the power of God, confirming the gospel of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. And the use of the gift of tongues on that day was that each man heard the gospel in his own language. And so on the day of Pentecost, the variety of tongues poured out by the Holy Spirit did not need to be interpreted to be understood. Fourth, the gift of tongues was given by the Holy Spirit in the household of Cornelius to confirm that the gospel was believed, that the gospel was accepted or that the Holy Spirit came on and enabled Gentiles to believe, all right? That was the purpose of of tongues there. It was a radical thing for Gentiles to be brought into the church of God. And so God made it very clear to whom? You would think it would be the Apostle Paul, right? He was the great controversialist against the Judaizers that tried to make all of the Gentiles into Jews, right? That's not who he showed it to. He showed it to to the apostle Peter, the one who switched where he sat in, in, in the potlucks to hang with the Jews instead of the Gentiles. And there, the gift of tongues was given by the Holy Spirit in the household of Cornelius to confirm to the apostle Paul Peter, and to the people with him, and therefore to the church of Jerusalem, to the church everywhere, that God now includes the Gentiles. And tongues was the proof of the pudding. Fifth, the gift of tongues was given to the Ephesians for the same reason. Not so that they might understand the gospel message, but to confirm that the power of Jesus Christ had worked among the believers there. Six, the practice of tongues in the Corinthian church did not normally involve the understanding of those present of what was being said with those tongues. Right? And thus, eighth, or seventh, or Jason, did you catch that mistake? Yeah, it is. It's seven. You're right. It's not eight. But my manuscript says eight, but it's seven. Thank you. Thus, seventh, the superiority of prophecy over tongues. Both are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Both are gifts of the Holy Spirit. But prophecy is superior to tongues because prophecy is comprehensible, intelligible, understandable, and therefore helpful. Eighth, the only way tongues was helpful to the full church was if those tongues were interpreted. And ninth, the Apostle Paul, despite the division, despite the division being over tongues, despite the fact that the tongues weren't interpreted, the Apostle Paul did not do what John MacArthur does. Now, some of you don't know who John MacArthur is, but many of you do. Those that do, raise your hand. John MacArthur is the main example in America today of a cessationist. And he is absolutely death on tongues. There was an elder at the previous church I served in Bloomington who would talk to me numbers of times and tell me that he was convinced tongues was demon possession. 
All right? Listen, the abuse of a thing does not invalidate its proper use. This is something we can't seem to get into our brains. You know, because somebody once used an axe to kill his grandmother doesn't mean that you can't take an axe on your camping trip and use it on wood. And the same thing is true of tongues, right? Because tongues and healing are unbelievably abused in the church today, it is not proper for us to make a rule that says that nobody can speak in tongues. The Bible always gives us the rules to live by. And the Bible's rules are that we're not supposed to have tongues unless they're interpreted. And David Wagner has a wonderful tool, technique of, of assuring. <laughs> I had to do it, David. Now, I got to tell you all a story because this is a good story, okay? You want to tell the story or you want me to? <laughs> so I come to Bloomington, what, 20, in 1990? Were we examined in 91 or 92? 92? Okay, early 92 in January, in, in, in our system of polity, David and I were both Presbyterian Church in America pastors, and in our system of polity, church governance, what happens is when you transfer, when you get ordained, you're examined. You're examined by all the elders and pastors of a bunch of churches. In our case, it was Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. That's about it. So I'd never met David. But he was being examined for ordination, and I was about to be examined for transfer from Northern Illinois Presbytery to this presbytery. So David's up there, and they go after him like bloodhounds. And the reason is that David believes that we should not forbid the speaking in tongues. You, you, you all know that I'm quoting something, right? Okay, so David's up there, and David says he doesn't think that we should be strict cessationists. He's not saying that he has a private prayer language, <laughs> you know. He's just saying hypothetically, you know, we shouldn't forbid the speaking in tongues. And they're all loaded for bear because most of them are cessationists. And so now, David, you're going to have to come up here and explain this because I can't get it straight, but you remember it. Come here. So David is asked how he would allow the speaking in tongues of a church service, right? So you tell them what you... This is really pretty funny. No, 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 this is wonderful. No, Tell them what you came up with. <laughs> Actually, you need to put it on this one. I think your ear is too large. Okay, go ahead. You're, you're, you'll hear you. The problem was that I somehow had to come up with a method where I would allow speaking in tongues, but then actually disallow it. So it couldn't actually occur, but it could theoretically occur. Now, I'm saying that as a joke because that's actually what it was. Um, I've never actually said that publicly, but that's what it was. Uh, and so... <laughs> how do you do that? Well, you have to get... A tape recorder. Now, some of you don't know what a tape recorder is. <laughs> but you have to get a tape recorder, and then you record the person speaking in tongues, and then you duplicate that tape. <laughs> and then you give it to people in separate rooms <laughs> who, 
who think they have the gift of interpretation and then they interpret it, but they don't know what each, and then you compare the interpretations. And if they, if it works, which it never would, <laughs> then it's okay. That was the way that I could have my cake, but also or eat, what, it, eat, eat it. it too. You yeah. can have your cake and eat it too. So I'm on the floor of Presbytery, and I'm listening. I've never met the dude. And he comes up with this, and it's like, you know, whoa. You know, obviously the Presbytery was loaded for bear. And I, I said in the first service, the truth is you could never have that happen. And the reason you couldn't is if I spoke right now in English and George's native language is English and Mary Lee's native language is, and they both heard me say it right, and then we split them up immediately and sent them in separate rooms to write down what I just said, it wouldn't match. And there'd be no tongues involved. It's, it's the game of telephone, right? So he, he sat down and I was very relieved because I had the same position, and we were exotic in the Presbyterian Church in America. And so I got up, and they began to grill me on the same issue, but they couldn't grill me as intensely as David because I was only coming to transfer. And you have to go light on transferees, or you make the previous Presbytery look bad. And so I get up, and they ask me whether I believe in tongues, this, that, and the other thing. And then somebody says to me, David Dively, who was our stated clerk, he looks at me and he says, Tim, do you agree with the Westminster Standards where they say, quote, that we are to pray in a known tongue, unquote? Well, that was sneaky. You know, using the Westminster Standards on the floor, you know. And so I thought quickly and then I said, yes. What I thought in my brain was the Holy Spirit knows it. Okay, now, let's come back to the issue. It is very clear that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he chooses. The Holy Spirit gives repentance as he chooses. The Holy Spirit gives faith as he chooses. The Holy Spirit gives resurrection of the dead. The Holy Spirit gives healing to the cripple to the blind. The Holy Spirit gives the casting out of demons as he chooses. The Holy Spirit is not interested in what we need him to do to build up our reputations. And so when I'm around people, and I've been around people my whole life who deny that there's any healing today, there was a guy named David Lindbergh who was one of the preeminent history of science guys in the country at the time, and we went to church together. I was cleaning his carpet one day. We got into an argument over healing. And David told me, he said, I have examined every case I can come up with of healings in the United States, and every case, it either didn't happen or it was psychosomatic. And it, it made me tremble to hear a PhD say that. Why? How did he know it was psychosomatic? How did he know? And I remember saying to him, and I've said to many people since, if Jesus returns, do you think it's possible that, they will, that he will send a prophet to precede him? And I've never had anybody say, no, he will not send a prophet. 
Can't God send a prophet when he wants to? We know that for 400 years he silenced the prophets in between the end of Malachi and the coming of Jesus. Can't he send prophets when he wants to? And they'll always agree that Jesus can send prophets. God can send prophets if he wants to. And then I say to them, how would you know? You're a cessationist. It is a central principle of your doctrine that God won't do this. And so if Christ is going to turn and he sends a prophet, you wouldn't believe. You look at the Pharisees. They had all the reasons why Jesus was not from God. Right? And so they did what? They killed him. Listen, we have to realize that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of our tight theology. And you can fault David and me for being Weasley, and I, David and I will both plead guilty. But God does not make his decisions based upon the fears that you and I have that some, some gift, some charism is going to be abused. Listen, I've been in those churches of abuse. I've been there when a friend of mine who thought he had the gift of healing had somebody get up out of a wheelchair because he was healed, and, and he proceeded to immediately just stumble across the platform. He hadn't been healed at all. Many of you have seen this. The world is filled with charlatans who claim to have the gift of healing, claim to have the gift of prophecy, claim to have the gift of tongues, on and on and on. And it's all counterfeit. But not all of it. Not all of it. And we must not try to set up systems that are so tight that we don't ever have to worry that the Holy Spirit is going to come on us or our wife. Because on the one hand, it'll be the most horrible moment of your life because you'll see your sin like you've never seen it before. But on the other hand, it'll be the most glorious moment of your life because you will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ like you've never seen it before. In other words, the Holy Spirit humbles us. And for too long in the Reformed Church, we have paid pastors to protect us from the Holy Spirit. And it must not be. This is a worship service. And it's presided over by God. It is not presided over by me or the elders except as subordinates to the Holy Spirit. And it is our job to do everything we can to call the Holy Spirit down upon us as a people. And if he comes... It won't be acceptable. And I won't name names. (laughs) And so safety is not what the Holy Spirit is about. Okay? We'll come back to this again. Let's close with singing praise to God.